This is a Federal News Network podcast. Lynn Parker Dupree, she's the chief privacy officer at the Homeland Security Department, is looking to make privacy less of an afterthought in the development of systems and procedures. Dupree spoke with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday about her plan to incorporate privacy-enhancing technologies into technical designs. She also talked about her experience as the most senior black official at DHS headquarters during this Black History Month. I feel like as a black leader at the department, my presence here, you know, as a representative matters. Seeing me in this role helps people imagine themselves within that role or imagine themselves in positions of authority at the department. I think, you know, my ability to serve as chief privacy officer and chief FOIA officer sort of shows that the sort of myth that there aren't enough qualified black members of the workforce for management or leadership in the public and private sectors isn't really true. And so I hope that I serve as an example of what is possible here at the department, not only in the privacy office, but really all across the Department of Homeland Security. We do so many things. There are so many issues that the department covers that if there are young people who are interested, there are pathways here and there is room for growth and advancement. And I I hope that's what I represent. Was it particularly difficult to get into the privacy space at first? Do you think that you have a unique perspective in the privacy space as a black woman? Is that something that shapes how you you approach your role on a day-to-day basis and and how you've approached privacy considering your extensive experience in the space? I do. I think it's funny to say this. I feel like I was born to be in privacy even before I realized that privacy existed as a career. Because even as a young person, as a teenager, I was always sort of very aware of what companies did with my information. I was like a late adopter to Gmail for for those reasons. But and and not because I actually understood that privacy was a career. I joined privacy when privacy was still very niche. There was a time where I think I probably knew most privacy professionals in the federal government. But I will say it it matters to me because I think many civil rights and civil liberty violations begin with privacy overreaches. And so from that standpoint, I think, you know, as a Black woman, I am more particularly attuned to the importance of protecting privacy. But I think that you know, privacy is something that impacts everyone, whether it's, you know, in the commercial space or, or in the national security, sort of homeland security space. We all have personal information, whether it's medical information, you know, just our, you know, our regular commercial data. We all have privacy interests, and I think it is it is universal. Yeah, and especially at an agency like DHS, where there are just so many different component agencies with missions ranging, of course, from cybersecurity to law enforcement and other spaces. And can you just give us an update on what you've been working on and what your priorities have been uh, over the last year? So over the last year, uh, Privacy Office has been very, very busy, and I've been excited to be a part of a number of high-profile priorities that really have major privacy implications for the department. In part, you know, the response to the workforce health during the pandemic, responding to domestic violent extremism and the use of emerging technologies like biometrics and artificial intelligence. You know, the secretary has been sort of very clear about the importance of addressing privacy up front and has been very deliberate in including the privacy office early and often in policy discussions. 
Another thing that I've been really focused on is improving our engagement with our external stakeholders, including our privacy advocates in academia uh, and civil society. Um, I think it's really important that we hear those outside voices so that we can learn, hear from their perspectives and learn from them. You know, earlier, like I guess it was last year now, at the secretary's request, I arranged a meeting for the secretary and privacy advocates so that he could hear their concerns and viewpoints directly. And again, while the advocacy community and the department may not always be aligned, these engagements really do bring a diversity of opinions into the discussion that ultimately serve to improve our decision making processes. And that is actually the most important thing. Got it. And another thing you mentioned that's been among the top things on your list is, has been biometrics. And obviously, facial recognition is a hot topic, has been a hot topic for a while now. Do you have a framework for how you approach biometrics and specifically facial recognition when a subcomponent agency comes to you with a proposal to use that type of technology? How does that work? Absolutely. Our guiding framework is the fair information practice principles. And we, you know, analyze all of our privacy issues through that lens to ensure that we are approaching it in a very methodical way. Biometrics, there, you know, there are parts of the of the department that are statutorily required to use biometrics. And so I think there's a recognition that the department, you know, must engage in this activity, you know, in some way, in some places. However, we all recognize that there are unique privacy concerns and challenges related to the development and use of biometrics. So what we do is we work with our colleagues up front to you know, identify the privacy risk and provide protections to, to mitigate that risk. I think there are concerns that facial recognition technology isn't as effective across different demographics. So we will make sure that there are mechanisms in place to mitigate those risks. Certainly the use cases matter. Identification of individuals, you know, as required by law means that we need to work with them to understand the data, understand the setting, provide redress mechanisms, all of the things that sort of come through the analysis with the fair information practice principles. And ultimately, as part of my office's mission is we will do privacy impact assessments and publish those on our website so that people understand the analysis that we've undertaken and the protections that are in place for any technologies that use biometrics. Got it. And, and just as a quick follow up on that, there were five Democrats who recently wrote to several agencies, including DHS, asking them to end their use of a specific vendor, Clearview AI. Is that something that your office is reviewing or will have input on? I think the department is always trying to be responsive to the, the needs of Congress and the department will will respond back uh, through our Office of Legislative Affairs. And are there any other ongoing assessments of emerging technologies or recent assessments that you think folks should be aware of where you've kind of put this framework into action? One of the things I have also been focused on in the privacy office is what I call shifting the privacy office towards the future. I think our the fair information practice principles and our traditional governance frameworks absolutely are effective and they work. But one of the things that I would like to do is really begin to, to include privacy and technical designs. You know, in other words, a lot of our privacy mitigations happen after a technology is developed. But I have been really working with academia and technologists to 
to figure out how we can build tools that actually enhance privacy. Um, and so I have been focused on what I'm calling privacy enhancing technologies. We are actually putting on a workshop in June that is going to enable privacy researchers to work on DHS use cases that might be solved with privacy enhancing technologies. And by that, I mean various cryptographic techniques, various secure computing methodologies so that privacy can be embedded in how we do business. For example, my office is sponsoring a research project on how we can use decentralized identifiers to replace social security numbers. And what that means is that the risk of losing a social security number is reduced because the social security number is not actually being shared. And that is a technology that can impact everyone because we all have to you know, use our social security numbers in a variety of different contexts. But if we are hashing that with a decentralized identifier, it's actually safer for the public. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think everyone is kind of concerned that their social security number is out there on the dark web, including privacy in design up front for DHS to put that into practice. I guess that would require some sort of work with the acquisition community, right? And the research community, which you, you referenced to include some of these requirements or specifications and contracts. Is is that something that's that's happening today or you hope will happen in the near future? Certainly, this is something that is currently happening. You know, the privacy office does review, um, every privacy office in the department actually does review contracts for specific privacy requirements. But yes, as I'm talking specifically about privacy enhancing technologies, you know, we are working with our um, colleagues in the chief information officer's office, our colleagues in the science and technology directorate. We will ultimately be uh, have to work with our colleagues in procurement to make sure that as we develop these new kinds of technologies that we are taking it on from a comprehensive standpoint. And, and certainly as it relates to contracts, you know, the, the administration has announced an increase in federal contracting award dollars uh, to small uh, and disadvantaged businesses, which also includes black owned businesses. And so part of this will be making sure that these new initiatives really do encompass everyone. DHS Chief Privacy Officer Lynn Parker Dupree speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, Uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I 
talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffles Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.